And as you're seated, please open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll read verses 4 through 10 together, though we'll only be covering verses 4 through 8 this morning. It's a single paragraph in the original, and uh, there's just so much there that uh, we're going to pause between verses 8 and 9 this week. Lord willing, we'll cover the other two next week. But 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 4, as you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Father, we pray in this time as we come to your word that we would not disobey it, Father, but that we would love you that we would hear you, and as your Spirit works in our hearts and minds through your Word, God, would you bring a greater obedience and love because of love and because of your great name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have been studying this letter that was originally written to the elect exiles, and we've seen that that was believers scattered across modern Turkey, but we've seen how relevant it is to us here today, this morning, believers everywhere, including us, since we share the same permanent homeland with them in heaven. Our true home is no longer where we were born or where we have an earthly citizenship. Our true home is the perfect, never-changing, never-fading, guaranteed, promised, God-promised, God-delivered inheritance of heaven, where we will be with Jesus forever, without sin. And we gained that inheritance the same way they did, according to, Peter says, God's great mercy through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, so that we are all born again to a living hope. And it's relevant to us because we live in anticipation, the same way they did, of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time, the, the revelation of Jesus Christ, Peter says, because of His precious blood that ransomed us from our futile ways. We're called into holiness by the holy God. We're called into a loving community of believers to love one another, other people around us who have purified our souls by faith in Jesus. And we are born again through the instrument of the Word of God. This is sort of a review of what we've covered, right? The, of what we've been studying, the Word of God that is living and abiding. It's never changing, never fading. The Word of God that's proclaimed, it's preached and it's taught and it's sung and it's prayed so that we will know what God has said so we can remember Him and His words and so that we can love one another. We can love and we can be holy and so that we can be holy in love and we can love Him who makes us holy all by His grace. So last week we saw some of what holiness looks like. It, again, it's perpetually connected to the Word of God that our holiness and our love for one another never looks like malice or deceit, or hypocrisy, or envy, or slander. It never looks like that. Our love for one another never has any of that because it's excluded, right? And all of that's to be put off, and it's to be put on. What is to be put on is the Word of God. When we act in all those ways, rather than loving one another, what we're actually doing is loving ourselves more than one another and more than Christ. We're longing to be first. We want to be the greatest. We want to have all the attention on ourselves when we're putting other people down, living in hypocrisy. So we're loving ourselves rather than others. But instead of longing for any of that, longing for myself to be appreciated and, and acknowledged and known, we put all of that off when we replace it with a longing for the pure milk, the spiritual milk of the Word, and so that we grow up into salvation. Isn't it amazing how much we've studied so far, just in 1 Peter, how much the Lord has done for us? Isn't it amazing to see how it all fits together so amazingly well that this is not the Word of man, but the Word of God? Well, this week is no different. 
this week, we're going to see that our love for one another brings us closer together and closer to Jesus. In fact, there's a picture in your notes about this truth. I wanted to give you this up front so that we keep this in mind. You'll see a triangle there in your notes. I often draw this in counseling. When I'm meeting with people and counseling people, it's, it's to help our understanding of the church, our relationship with one another, and with Jesus. At the top of the triangle, in the blank at the top, write Jesus. Jesus goes in that blank. In the lower left-hand blank, the smaller one, if you don't know right from left, there's a big one and a small one. <laughs> in the small one, write me. Don't, don't write me like my name, but write, you can write your name or you can write the letters M-E for me. In the lower right-hand blank, write one another. One another. So here's the point of the triangle. The closer that you and I get to Jesus, the closer you and I are getting to one another. And the closer you and I are getting to one another in truth and love, the closer that we're getting to Jesus. You'll note that the opposite is true as well. As we drift away from Jesus, we drift away from one another. And as we drift away from one another, we begin drifting away from Jesus. As we study these verses, verses 4 through 8, and then again, Lord willing, again, verses 9 through 10, we're going to see the connectedness of believers to one another and to the Lord. So far in this letter, Peter has caused us to think a lot about our Lord, our great God who has saved us, the salvation that He has brought about, is bringing about, and will bring about. And so we've looked upward to see this great God, even during trials and difficulties, even during a culture war against Jesus that the believers were engaged in at the time and and would soon turn into government-sanctioned persecution which we've seen may not be far off from our own situation. We've looked upward at this God, and then we've we've looked inward to see a little bit more about who we are in Christ Jesus because of this salvation that He's brought. We're called into holiness and love and fellowship with other believers. And and so we've looked upward and we've looked inward, and all of that is totally different from what we were before we were born again. In our salvation, we've become exiles even in our homeland, and we've been joined together in Christ to form a new creation, something completely different. But now Peter tells us, look outward for a minute. And as we start to look outward, we're going to see other believers and then a whole lot of unbelievers, and we should see a difference. But Peter, in talking about these two groups, he doesn't tell us to look at individuals. He doesn't say, look at this person and that person. The assessment in these verses is that there are only two kinds of people in the world, but they exist in one of two groups. And he's looking at the groups as a whole. It's a collective view rather than individual. All unbelievers are lumped together in one group here in 1 Peter, and all believers are lumped into the other group. The unbelievers have rejected Jesus. The believers have believed in Jesus. And so as we look outward, what do we see? Well, we see unbelievers collectively, what once we used to be, what we once were, and what our flesh still wants to be, what the world works hard to try to make us become again, and our flesh working with the world to do that. That's what we see from unbelievers. And then we see believers with different characteristics and duties as believers in holiness and love. See, the world is constantly trying to make us into the image of itself. With our new citizenship, we have a new culture. We're part of a new culture. But the old culture of the world does not appreciate the new culture that we have together in Christ. So that sets up a culture war. But the way that it's fought, at least for now, is not with weapons, but with a worldly ideal that rivals what God's ideal is for people. Here's the ideal the world says. Don't you want to be like this? Isn't this appealing? Doesn't this look good, this ideal? The ideal person of the world shows up in culture, in art, in conversation, in social media, TV, and movies, and books, and and each culture has its own stereotype of the ideal person. And in every culture, the ideal is very appealing to the world and to our flesh if we live in that worldly culture. Here in America, the ideal person has changed. And it's changing quickly. It's changing very rapidly. The, the ideal American citizen, right? The ideal person used to be a rugged individual, devoted to family, grounded in some kind of objective truth, hardworking, civically responsible, 
right? Uh, devoted and, 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 and just a certain picture of the ideal person in America. But the changes have been immense. Today, the ideal person must at all costs avoid objective truth, but should, should be convinced of his or her own truth until he or she decides not to be. <laughs> that, that truth was yesterday's truth, but to me, this is today's truth, or within a matter of five minutes. I, no one should be boxing me in on my truth, right? No person or evidence of fact should influence my personal decision on what truth is. The ideal person today can be devoted to family, if they so choose, depending on whether or not their family appreciates them, affirms them, celebrates them for who they've decided that they are. Family can be defined however I decide to define it. But even that shouldn't be locked in. I can change my mind if I need to on who my family is. I need the freedom to do that. The ideal person today shouldn't have to work hard. They can if they want. But we are all ideal people. We should all have what everyone else has, right? Whether we work hard for it or not. To have anything different is simply viewed as an inherited power structure perpetuated by privilege and patriarchy. <laughs> the ideal person of today does have some responsibility to be civically minded, but only insofar as it means reducing their carbon footprint, right? <laughs> There's no allegiance to a country or doing civic duties or, or helping your neighbor. You just be you, you do you, and everything is fine. Right? That's, that's the ideal person of today. That's the kind of person the world holds up as ideal for us today, and, and that's the latest ideal that's appealing to the world, and it can be appealing to our flesh. It's a whole lot easier just go in my house, close the door, mind my own business, forget about everybody else and their problems, and uh, just do my own thing. It can be appealing to the flesh for younger people. Older generations may still hold to other ideals from the world but wherever our flesh is appealed to a worldly ideal, the worldly ideal is always contrasted with Jesus. You say, oh, no, wait a minute. That doesn't seem fair. Back in the good old days, we were responsible, hardworking, good people, right? And that's nice. But if it wasn't grounded, and if it isn't grounded in Jesus Christ and our love for Him, the truth of who He is, it's nothing more than just being moral people like the Pharisees. See, it doesn't really matter what flavor of culture that we like. The problem is that we like any flavor of worldly culture, especially when we like it more than our new culture together as believers. All worldly culture, whether it seems moral and upright or slippery slope, anything goes, either side has its root in a rejection of Jesus. Whether it's a strict morality or celebration of sin, none of it from the world begins with Jesus. That's why it's in the world. And none of it continues to point to Jesus. None of it ends in Jesus. In fact, the beginning and end of worldly ideals and cultures is a rejection of Jesus. Our only two options are the world in rejection to Jesus and the Word in submission to Jesus. That's it. And submission to Jesus means love for Him. It means love for His followers and holiness while rejection of Jesus means acceptance of worldly ideals that are the opposite of that. But this has always been true. This is true in Peter's time. It's been true for 2,000 years of church history. But there hasn't been as, as, as an obvious retreat from the Word into the world as often or as fully as we've seen in the last 100 years in the Western church. Pastors and people in churches in America and Britain and Australia and other Western countries have routinely and continually embraced worldly culture and ideals over Jesus and His Word. We've seen it in evolution. We've seen it in the social gospel. We've seen it in psychotherapy, critical theory, wokeness, or anything else that the world has held up as ideal. Much of the church has been more of an amoeba that bends over backward to try to appeal to those ideals rather than holding firm to Jesus and His Word. And the effects of that in the church have been less unity in the church, less fellowship with one another, becoming more like the world, no holiness, less holiness, less love for Jesus, 
And so believers begin to look a lot like unbelievers. We, we begin to talk like them, to think like them, to throw out the word, forget about holiness and love, and hold up and hold to worldly ideals. Now, before we get much further, I, I need to say that as Peter sets up these two different groups of the unbelievers and the believers, he's not setting up an us versus them mentality. So let, let's make sure that we don't uh, kind of devolve into that thinking, that it is us versus them. It is them versus us, but we're not against them. We're not versus them as unbelievers. We are for them coming to the Lord, and we're praying for them, and we're loving them. So let's not make a mistake of thinking that there's an us versus them but there is an us and there is a them, and the difference is Jesus. So let's look at these verses together in 1 Peter 2. And, and here in this section, every time you see the word you, it's plural in the original. We don't have a plural second person in English, unless you're from the South and you say y'all, right? That's <laughs> but if you talk to anybody in the South, they can say y'all to just one person. So it's, it's not... <laughs> It's not a strict definition, so y'all, it, it's you all, it's plural. So the temptation as we read this might be to think that, you know, he's talking to me personally, individually, and he is, but really the emphasis here is that Peter is speaking to us collectively, you all, not as individuals. Remember, that's the assessment of these verses that's collective. As you all, as all of us together, come to Him, living stone, you all yourselves together, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. It's a a whole, a complete whole with a specific purpose. And the honor, verse 7 we see, is for you all, in contrast to them all, those all who do not believe. They stumble because they disobey. So, uh, verses 9 and 10 continue. But the entirety of this section is a foundation of thought before we get really practical, as Peter does in the rest of this letter. Before we get into the really practical stuff of what holiness looks like, lived out in believers, we need this foundation of thought. Here is you, there is them. They're going to do what they're going to do, but we have specific purposes together as believers. So internalize this in our minds. Change our thinking, our thought patterns, and then it will come out in our actions and words, and Peter will tell us what that looks like in the rest of the letter. So let's look at the verses together in three parts. Number one, Peter's going to teach us that continually coming to Jesus results in collective likeness, verses four through five. Continually coming to Jesus results in a collective likeness. Verse four, Peter isn't giving a command here, he's he's making a statement. But the statement, when it's true, leads to results. The results first include a collective likeness of Jesus. As you all come to him, and then he explains who the him is, the living stone rejected by men but precious in the sight of God, chosen and precious. As you all come to him, what's happening? You all yourselves together, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So this group of you all who come to Jesus is set up in verse 7 as those who believe And it's directly contrasted with those who do not believe. They reject Jesus, the cornerstone, and they stumble. And so you see the two different groups. Believers are those who come to Jesus. But what does that mean, come to Jesus? We might assume as we're reading this that he's talking about salvation, you know, that you uh, came to Jesus in salvation, but that's not what it means. That's, That's not, it's not that way because it's not past tense. Peter doesn't say, as you came to him, or since you have come to Jesus. He's not talking about a a one-time thing in the past, you know, that one time I prayed that prayer in church, I came to Jesus. No, he's saying, this is the continual, this is a, a participle, those who are continually coming to Jesus. That's what's emphasized here. You remember, as we've gone through this, Peter has already identified the people he's written to as exiles who are elect who are born again. They have genuine faith tested by fire. They love Jesus. They believe in Jesus. He calls them children of obedience. They're ransomed by the precious blood of Jesus. They have purified souls. So he's already talking to people who have believed in Jesus. But now he's zeroing in on the the present middle participle of those who continue to believe in Jesus, who come to Jesus. We don't just come to him one time and then fade off into the world to live for ourselves. Got my golden ticket, right? And then I get to do whatever I want. We come to him one time for salvation. We are forever saved, but then we truly continually come to him day by day, minute by minute if needed. But also keep in mind that we do this together. 
collectively. We, we come together to him and we all together become, uh, begin to become more like him. We start to look more like him. Peter describes him in verse 4 as the living stone, which is a metaphor. He is the living stone. Verse 5 is a simile. We, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So just as Jesus is a living stone, we become like living stones just as he is, just in, in his likeness, in his image. But what does that mean? What is a living stone? Peter has a habit of saying things that are living that aren't physically alive. As we've looked at 1 Peter, remember in chapter 1, verse 3, we're born to a living hope? That's not physically alive. And in verse 23 of chapter 1, we are born again through the living word. And here we become like living stones, just as Jesus is a living stone. But this isn't Peter's idea, this living stone idea. This is what Jesus calls himself in Mark 12, verses 10 and 11. He is the stone that the builders rejected. He's the cornerstone. And Jesus quotes Psalm 118 and applies it to himself, just as Peter does here in calling Jesus the stone. The meaning of stone, the meaning of cornerstone in the passages that Peter will quote for us in a few minutes, and as he uses them here, the meaning is foundation, surety, and strength. Like the song we sang this morning, How Firm a Foundation. In the middle of the shifting opinions and the warring cultures and uncertain futures, we have the certainty of the Lord and the promises of His Word. But those promises of God's Word are two-sided. God is the solid rock of absolute security to those who come to Him, but He's also the solid rock of inescapable judgment to those who reject Him. So it goes both ways. There's security, there's safety, and there's judgment and appropriate fear of the stone, the cornerstone. So Jesus is the stone here. But Peter calls him the living stone. And I believe the reason that Peter does that is because he wants us to keep it clear in our minds that we're not worshiping an idol. You know, the idols that are made of stone or wood or silver or gold. No idol is alive. No false god is alive. It can't talk or move or make promises or keep promises. They're just rocks and sticks and metal. But Jesus, as the solid rock, the stone of security and judgment, is alive, and He's living. And so, as the living stone, Jesus is the marker. He's the dividing line. And you can think of it like a situation where two parties go before a judge, and the judge gives justice. He pronounces justice. One side has to pay. The other side receives, right? It, it, he's the dividing line. That's the living stone, Jesus. But we are all, brothers and sisters, coming to Him continually and collectively, and when we do that together, we become like Him. Just as He's the living stone, we become living stones. We have new life in Him, and we're sure and steady and secure in Him. And so we come to Him, we become like Him, but we also necessarily become more connected to one another because we're being built together into a house a spiritual house. And another word for that that's used commonly in Scriptures is temple. We're being built together into a temple, and that's what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 3. He says that we all together are God's temple. And I know that we, we know that verse, but some of us get confused with that verse and the later verse where Paul is speaking individually. But in 1 Corinthians 3, he's talking collectively. When we are together, we are the temple of God. And so this is what we need to learn and remember, that believers become like Jesus and like one another as we come to Him. We're not stones who are now stones on our own, right? You, you can't take a single brick, a single stone, and make a house out of it, right? You need other stones. One commentator said, individualistic Christianity is an absurdity. See, there's no such thing as individual Christianity. It's part of the ideal person that the world has held up that, that many of us have fallen for. You know, I got this. I can do this on my own. It's just me and God, right? There's a song like that, me and God. Um, it's we and God. <laughs> it's we together. You say, I don't need those people. I don't need church. I don't need to be around other believers. God disagrees. He's given us one another, and as we grow closer together, we grow closer to Him. We stand together. We're built together into that house. Really, when believers come together, we have replaced the temple that was in Jerusalem where God dwells on earth. He dwells within us, His people, together. So we are, we are little living stones to Jesus, the ultimate living stone. So now we live together. 
We live with one another and alongside one another and as Christ, with Christ. What about unbelievers? What, what do they do? Well, here in verse 4, unbelievers reject Jesus. And the word rejected means to take something, to look at it, and to say that's useless. That's worthless. And so it's rejected. It's, it's thrown out. It's tossed away. That's how the world judges Jesus, rejected as useless and worthless. But how does God view Jesus? What, is, what does God see when he looks at Jesus? He sees his, that he's chosen and precious. Chosen means selected for a special privilege. He's especially beloved. He's exalted and set apart. Precious means highly valued, costly. He's dear. He's of considerable value or worth. Man views Jesus as worthless. God views Jesus as worthy. The world sees Jesus as no value or even negative value. God sees Jesus as having infinite value. But this is where it extends to us, and we need to understand this. The world rejected and still rejects the living stone. What do you think the world is going to do to us little living stones if we're becoming more like Christ? But the living stone is chosen and precious to God. How do you think he views you as you come to him, fellow little living stone? You, brother and sister, in Christ Together, all of us are chosen and precious to God. Even while the world views you as trouble or not worth their time and rejects you individually and rejects the church as a whole, God sees us differently. And this is only true as we continually and collectively come to Jesus. Not as we reject Him in our thoughts or our attitudes. Not as we kind of live in the world like the world, as the world, of the world. We're not being built up by the way, we, we're not there yet. None of us is there yet. That's why we're being built up. <laughs> it's a continual thing, so we don't expect perfection. We expect progress because that's what God says. We're, but we're not being built up as we become more like the world, as we buy into worldly ideals. That's not how we're being built up. It's as we come together continually to Jesus. That's what happens. That's the first result. There's a second one that Peter says, number two in verse 5, he says, continually coming to Jesus results in collective worship. It's a collective worship in verse 5. What's a temple without priests? Well, we are collectively also being made into a priesthood that offers spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Why would we be made like priests or made into a priesthood? Well, what do priests do? They directly worship God. They offer up sacrifices. So what are we sacrificing? Are we supposed to be offering animal sacrifices like they used to do in the Old Testament? Jesus' one perfect sacrifice has fulfilled every substitutionary, every atoning sacrifice to God. And that's what the animal sacrifices were looking forward to. In my place, this innocent, flawless animal dies because of my sin. But Jesus is the only innocent and flawless human being and he replaced me under God's wrath because of my sins in a perfect substitutionary atoning sacrifice. But the sacrifices that we now make then, since they're not substitutionary because they're for us and, and, or they're from us, and they're not atoning because Jesus has already done that, these are spiritual sacrifices who has made us priests to worship and sacrifice to him. So if it's not animals, then what are we sacrificing? Ourselves. We're sacrificing ourselves to Him. Again, not in an atoning way, not in a meritorious way, but as free will offerings. Because we want to offer to Him. That, because that's all we have to offer to Him. As we come to Jesus collectively, we desire to offer ourselves in obedience to Him. We're denying ourselves, and we're taking up our cross, and we're following Him. It's how we begin to follow Him, and it's how we continue to follow Him. Romans 12.1 uses the same word in the same way. You remember when Paul says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So this is, this is our continual and collective worship as priests, offering ourselves to him who saved us. That's, that's what we're offering, and those are the sacrifices. Now, these sacrifices that we offer would never amount to anything at all, if we do them on our own or for our own sake. Peter says they must be offered through Jesus Christ. 
Again, it's as we deny ourselves and follow Jesus and continue to follow Him. So what I want you to do is, just for a second, think about something that you have done recently for a fellow believer. And if you can't think of something you did for a fellow believer, think of something you did for somebody else. And if you still can't think of anything, we're missing something, right? <laughs> we're, we're missing, th- because even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many, right? So we should be serving, so we're meant to serve one another, even people in the world. So think about something that you've done recently for someone. Now, here's the harder part. Think about, now really think about why you did what you did for that person. Was it, well, I mean, that guy's pretty cool, so I wanted to, I wanted to do something nice for him, you know. She's, she's always been really nice, so I, I wanted to do something nice for her. Uh, maybe you were hoping to get something in return. You know, I'll, I'll do something nice for him, and later on he'll pay me back. Maybe I was just hoping to get some, att- some attention, right? I just wanted some credit from somebody. I wanted to feel better about myself. Think about what motivated you to do something for a fellow believer or for somebody else. It can be difficult, and it's usually pretty humbling because it's very rare for us to do anything for somebody else with pure motives. Amen. But those things that we do with wrong motives are not acceptable to God as sacrifices because we're not sacrificing anything. We're just trying to fulfill some desire in ourselves and and trying to do something for somebody else to meet that desire. Pure motives would be doing something for someone else because Jesus right? Because Jesus loves me, I love you and I serve you. Because Jesus died for me, I give my life in service to you. Because Jesus is my Lord, because He loves me, He loves you, I love you. And I do for you, everything I do for you, forgiving you, bearing your burdens with you, living life together with you, all of the one another's that we talk. I do all of those things not to get anything out of it, not to be appreciated, not to be recognized, not to, be, not to get anything, but to give it because Jesus has given everything to me. When that is true among us together, we're offering spiritual sacrifices, the kind of sacrifices that are acceptable to God. And, and the word here is acceptable. It's quite pleasing <laughs> to God. So it makes God happy. <laughs> Getting very specific, what can that look like? What, what will spiritual sacrifices look like when we're offering ourselves up? If you'll turn back to Hebrews chapter 13, uh, between 1 Peter and Hebrews is the book of James. It's a short one. So just a few pages backward to Hebrews 13. Verse 15 gives us a, some concrete examples of sacrifice to God and to one another. So In verse 15 of Hebrews 13, he says, through him, and the him is Jesus there, through him then let, who is he going to talk to here, individual, each of you individually? No, he says, let us, and then what's the word here? Continually, again, that's the collective and continual that we're talking about in in Peter, through him, Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Praising God is a sacrifice. How how is that a sacrifice? Because when we're praising God, we have to acknowledge His name in our hearts to be truly praising God, not just singing a song or not just saying something, right? But, But it means to acknowledge His name in our heart, and it comes out of our mouth as praise. It's a sacrifice because it requires acknowledging God as God and not me, right? It, it, I'm praising someone who's greater than me. It requires submitting to Him, praising Him rather than me getting any kind of praise or thanks. It means seeking what pleases God and not me. There's absolutely no cause for fighting here about how we praise our God. There shouldn't be any cause for fighting about how we praise our God. You know, I like to praise Him this way. I like to worship Him that way. I like to sing this. I like to say that. I like to. Which side are we going to try to please? Neither side. We're trying to please God. So praising God is a sacrifice, especially as we do that together, continually, collectively coming to Him. Look at verse 16 here in Hebrews 13. He says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. Well, (laughs) what does that have to do with anything? Because he says, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Doing good and sharing are sacrifices. Well, why? 
again, because doing good requires doing things for the good of the other person. Doing good doesn't mean just doing something nice for somebody. It's doing it for their good, expecting nothing in return. And sharing requires the same thing, doesn't it? it for one thing, it necessarily requires other believers to be around. You can't share with yourself. You know, I give me this. Why, thank you. <laughs> How nice of you to share, right? It requires other people around to share. And it's not doing something good if you get something in return. That's called trading or reciprocal or getting paid to work, right? That's why it's a sacrifice. It has to come out of something. It has to cost you something. Sacrifices are pleasing to God and acceptable to God when they are sacrifices and when they're done through Him, as the writer of Hebrews says in verse 15, through Jesus Christ, as Peter says. So being together is a mandatory part of our life of offering sacrifices, our life of worship. Uh, another commentator said it this way, quote, a distinct corporate identity in Jesus Christ is essential to the offering of authentic Christian worship. We've got to be together. We've got to be collectively, continually coming to Jesus, continually coming to Him, and it's, it's a sacrifice. We're now different from what we were before, and part of that difference is that we belong to one another. We become like a NASCAR. And some of you perked up, and some of you said, what? <laughs> what is a NASCAR? Originally, NASCAR was supposed to be a stock car, just a car that that was produced by a Ford or a Chevrolet factory. It came off the line, you, you, you kind of strengthened the safety up a little bit, and then you took it and raced it against other stock cars. That's what NASCAR actually means, the National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing. You race it against other cars, but it's not really that way anymore. If you've, if you've seen a NASCAR today, the cars are meant to resemble the stock car they're supposed to represent, but under the skin, it's completely different, right? It's rebuilt and built completely for this one specific purpose of racing. We are a NASCAR to the world's stock cars. We resemble, loosely, <laughs> outwardly, unbelievers. We don't look any differently from the other people. We, we resemble them, but inside we've been completely changed by our Savior. We're completely different, and we have a specific purpose. Together, as, as if we're NASCAR race team, we're a team of cars together, we, we're racing, trying to, to reach the end. And, and that's an example that Paul gives a lot, an illustration of in this race together. But you take the race car that looks like the vehicle it's supposed to resemble, it's set apart for a totally different purpose, and it's useful because it's been changed from inside. And that's what we are. This is our collective ministry together of, of worshiping and offering sacrifices to God as we come to Jesus as a holy priesthood. And that, that, that's the express purpose of offering spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We begin to become more like Him and like one another, and we begin to serve and offering sacrifices as He did together. By the way, I was just amazed by the Reformation principles that are all over these passages of the importance of the Word and the priesthood of all believers by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's amazing. So, Continually coming to Jesus results together in collective likeness and worship. Number three, what Peter says here is that continually coming to Jesus results in collective honor, in a collective honor, verses six through eight. Peter begins this with the assertion of the standing word of God. He says it stands in Scripture. I'm not making this up. I'm not telling you anything that, that God didn't say. This is God's word. He begins to quote Isaiah 28, 16, and he says, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. This comes from Isaiah 28 where the people were believing lies, man's word instead of God's word. God says judgment is coming. Man says, don't worry about it. Everything's fine. Judgment's not coming. We're going to be fine. But God says that in those verses that he himself has laid a foundation in Zion, in Jerusalem, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. Now, if you were to go back into Isaiah 28 and you read the verse there, the translators of the ESV say that whoever believes in uh, will not be in haste. And Peter says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Haste or hurry was not respectable. It wasn't distinguished. 
It wasn't an honorable thing to do. So being in a hurry was a shame um, in a shame and honor culture. So you'll, you'll see that change if you compare those. But the meaning is not affected. You, when you believe, you will not be shamed or in haste. Peter identifies Jesus as the cornerstone, the most important stone in the building. Everything else is dependent on this stone. He's the visible support that the rest of the building depends on for strength, for stability, for, for being straight and, and right and true. You can't replace the cornerstone. If you take it out, the whole thing falls apart. Believing in Jesus, the cornerstone that is again chosen and precious, same words that Peter used before, Doing that prevents all of us from coming to shame, from being put to shame. Not in the eyes of the world. They, they already think that we're worthless, right? They, the world already thinks that Jesus is worthless and that we, because we're becoming like him, are worthless. But in the eyes of God, there is no shame for us in Jesus as we come to Jesus. In fact, there is no doubt because Peter uses the, the, uh, the strongest negation in the Greek, may plus subjunctive form. We will never, it'll never happen. It can't ever happen for us to be shamed. Today, right now, you may, you may find some people who are embarrassed because we don't believe that God um, didn't make the world, <laughs> that, that God created everything in, in six literal days and rested on seven. That's ridiculous, people say, say and think. And, and people may be embarrassed by that, but in the end, there is no embarrassment. There is no shame there is only honor, because that's the opposite of shame, and that's what Peter says is for us who believe in verse 7. There is honor. Just in case we missed it, just in case we had any question, he spells it out. When we believe in Jesus, not only will we not be put to shame, but we have honor in Jesus, because we believed in Him. But don't miss the continual nature of this belief. Again, Peter doesn't say, for those who have believed in Jesus. He says, but for those who do believe, who, who continue to believe. And it's a collective effort again. But then to make it even more clear, he includes the truth about the other group. What's true of the other people who don't believe in Jesus? Verse 7, he says, but for those who do not believe, here he begins to quote Psalm 118 and Isaiah 8 to back up his point. He says, they do not believe, they have rejected Jesus, they have stumbled over him, and he has become a rock of offense. And the reason is because they have disobeyed the word. In Psalm 118, the psalmist seeks to enter the gates of righteousness, the, the context of what he quotes here. He also calls it the gate of the Lord. He says, I'm, I want to enter those gates so that I can give thanks to the Lord, specifically because he is, he is my salvation. But then in verse 22 of Psalm 118, he turns to those that he calls builders who have rejected the stone that has become the cornerstone. He says, I can't figure it out. It's, it's marvelous. It's, it's indescribable. It's mind-boggling that God has taken what people thought was worthless and making it, and has made it of infinite value. But why does, why do, why does the psalmist, and, and why does Peter, quoting the psalmist, call the people builders? They don't need to build anything. The gates of the Lord were there. He's building us up as His house. What, what could they possibly need to build? Unless they were building a different house, a different temple to worship someone or something else. And if you're building a temple to yourself or to your own idols, you don't need, and in fact, you cannot use Jesus as your cornerstone. He's the Lord. He's the master, the chosen, precious one. He is God, not me, not my idols, right? He's the master. So Jesus will not and cannot be used in your own temple, and you wouldn't anyway because it doesn't fit with your plans for your ideas. Jesus really is worthless to help you build your temple your house, to worship something else. So these builders, these builders are not being built into a spiritual house as believers are, into a holy priesthood. They're the opposite of that. They're building not what God would have them build, but like the Tower of Babel, they're building their own structure. They reject God's Word, and they build their own house. And the rejection doesn't have to be conscious or intentional. It can be done without thinking about it in that way without even knowing that they're doing that, but it is willful. It is a, an act of the will. God's witness in creation constantly shouts who He is, that He is God and that He's good and that He's, he's there and He's powerful. So when we build our own temples, when people build their own houses, they willfully reject the witness that God has given in creation. 
And so Psalm 118 is a passage about Jesus as the cornerstone that has been rejected by the world. But then Peter cites Isaiah 8.14, and, and I would encourage you to read Isaiah 8 and the context that surrounds it. It just jumps off the page. It's so relevant to us. We don't have time this morning together to do it, but study it uh, together in smaller groups. But he says, the Lord will become to the people both a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. The Lord, identified as Jesus in 1 Peter, is that sanctuary to those who believe in Him, our, our source of strength, our foundation, our security. But to those who reject Him, He's the stone of offense and a rock of stumbling, the stone that brings the occasion to sin. People stumble into sin over Jesus because when they reject Him, they choose sin. That he's, again, He's the dividing line. The rock of offense, offenses scandalon, the, the trigger of a trap. It's the rock that crushes you, as Jesus says in Matthew 13, 41. So again, we see the two sides of this stone. To us, he is certainty and salvation, but to the world, he's thought worthless and rejected. But he will be revealed as worthy, and they sinned against him when they rejected him. So Jesus is the one who has come, and in his coming, he has brought us life and holiness. But to those who do not believe, he is the means by which they sin in their rejection. That's what the rest of the, word, of the verse here in 1 Peter says. They, they stumble, they, they're dashed on him because, a consequence of their disobeying the word. And the word for disobey here is, is a word that means to willfully refuse. No, I will not believe. I refuse, I reject to believe and to obey. And that's the reason they stumble, because they've disobeyed the word and rejected Jesus. And the word here means it encompasses the whole word, not just the gospel. People who do not believe in Jesus live in rebellion to God. The strong idea here is, again, that Jesus is not the take it or leave it option. It's like, it doesn't matter. You can take him if you want him. He just makes your life better. It's so great. And if you don't, it's okay. You can live happy. The strong idea here is that Jesus and the witness about Jesus is ever-present and just as continually coming to him leads to important results, continually rejecting him leads to important results. And I found someone else who explains it better than me. He says, quote, it is not true to say that Christ is everything or nothing and can be taken or left. For to those who refuse belief, he is a constant anomaly, meeting them in unexpected places and challenging their indifference. His own words, he that is with me, he that is not with me is against me, illustrate the truth. And it is verified in the stumbling ways the confusion and lack of direction which characterizes ages of unbelief, end quote. Jesus, you can't just take him or leave him. Jesus is always there, and he's always going to be your stumbling block because you're always going to be stumbling over the truth of who he is. Such words apply now to our culture even more than they did when they were written. But a constant, continual rejection of Jesus and his word results in shame and stumbling and sin and judgment. But as we continually and collectively come to Jesus, we can avoid all of that shame and the judgment, and we can receive honor instead. But then Peter adds these words, and some of, some of us here may have stumbled over these words. Peter says, as they were destined to do. And uh, some may stumble over these, but, but this is the truth for every single person apart from Christ. We are all destined we're all appointed for, set aside for judgment and wrath under God. That's our destiny unless God intervenes and praise God because he did intervene in the person of Jesus. But if you reject him, you reject your rescue, your redemption, so your destiny remains the same. This is meant to be an encouragement to us, brothers and sisters, that our destiny has been changed. Our destiny now is with Christ in His glory, not with those who will be going to shame. And even for them, we need to remember, even for unbelievers, it's not a final destiny yet because they're not there yet. There's still time. There's still hope for them. Well, the world has already rejected Jesus. Long before that, He was elected by God. He was chosen. He was precious by God. And as we follow Jesus, and as we continually come to Him collectively, we are chosen and elected and precious and loved by God. We too are already rejected by the world. The world wants nothing to do with 
church. The world doesn't find value in church. But we need to make sure that we're not seeking to find approval and affirmation in the world. That we're not looking for what the world puts up as ideal or who we are and what we should be doing. Don't bow to the world's ideals and morality. We are new creations, and together we are a new creation in Him. As our application, as we're looking outward, we're keeping our eyes upward on Jesus. We don't fall into the pattern of the thinking of the world because it minimizes Christ, and when He is minimized, everything else is, He's dismissed, He's rejected when He's minimized, when He's placed anything above Him or even equal with Him. So, our application, we grow into the image of Christ. We become true worshipers of God, and we receive honor from God only as we continually and collectively come to Jesus and His Word. These results, these truths are only true of us, growing into the image of Christ, becoming true worshipers of God, receiving honor from God. Those are only true as we continually and collectively come to Jesus and His Word. Father, we pray that that would be true in our life, our life together, God. We pray that it would be true in our lives individually, but God, I pray that you would unite us together. Lord, you've told us, you've commanded us to love one another, and you've called us into that love. Lord, so often we think as individuals, we think as units ourselves, but God, you've called us together, and Lord, you've made us one in Christ. Father, I pray that the truth of who we are would be lived out in what we do. Lord, that it would be motivated by a love for you above ourselves. God, that it would be motivated by a love for others above ourselves, God. That, that your truth would go out in love to one another. Lord, that we would be built up into the house that you would indwell. God, the truth of who you are, the truth of who Jesus is and how he has saved us would go out into the world. Lord, that even if people don't believe, even if people don't submit, Lord, that we would be faithful to live and to speak your truth and love. God, we thank you for your precious and great promises. We praise you for preserving your word for us, and Lord, I pray that we would be in it together and individually. Lord, always loving you and learning you, that we would always be growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name, amen.